Good morning. How's everyone doing? Uh, my name is James Axel. Uh, I'm a member of Living Water. I've been coming here for uh, about a year and a half now, and uh, this church has been a, a tremendous blessing in my life. It's kind of hard to put into words, you know, how much this uh, ministry means to me. I, I'm grateful uh, that God placed it on Pastor Mike's heart to give me the opportunity uh, to be able to share the word. It's something that I definitely don't take for granted. Uh, there are uh, many people in here, many, many pastors, many, many qualified people, and I just thank God uh, for, for this opportunity. And one of the things I, I want to mention that I didn't mention in the, the previous two services is I, I thank God for Pastor Paul and, and the praise and worship team. Uh, they, they do a phenomenal job, and, and this weekend was no exception. It really blessed me, and it was one of those things where as you're preparing for a sermon, uh, if you're not careful, you can lose track and focus of what it's all about. You can become self-conscious and have all these fears and doubts and anxieties. And just to be in the presence of worship and to hear the songs, you know, it just redirects your focus and your attention and puts it back on Christ uh, where, it, where it belongs. Uh, I joked with the, uh, with the service yesterday. I, I told them that um, I got the opportunity to preach about two months ago, and I could just remember being up here and and being terrified, and as I'm, as I'm bringing forth the word, all these thoughts are running through my mind, and, you know, the enemy's whispering in my ear, just sit down, you're, you're doing a terrible job. And so as I'm preaching, um, I look to the right, and there's this one sister, I don't know her name, but she was gone. I mean, she was just in a coma. She was leaned on her, <laughs> she was leaned on her husband's shoulder. Her mouth was wide open. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to turn to the left. I'm going to focus this way. And when I pan in this direction, I see Pastor Mike, and he just let out the biggest yawn that I ever saw in my life. So I'm thinking, okay, I guess this is a one and done. I won't be back up here again. <laughs> but uh, I just thank God for grace, and uh, uh, I'm here. And so for those of you that have your Bible, that have uh, your smartphone, please turn to Luke chapter 23. We are in Luke chapter 23, and uh, I would humbly ask that those of you uh, that are able, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 23, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Heavenly Father, I just uh, I thank you for this opportunity, Lord God. I thank you for your word. Lord God, it, it is our anchor. Um, it, it allows us to get closer to you. It's our light in this dark world, Lord God. And so I pray that you would touch every mind, 
every heart, every person under the sound of my voice, Lord God. We don't want to just deceive ourselves by reading your word and being hearers alone, Lord God, but we want to apply it in our lives, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that we would see just how holy you are, just how deserving you are of our worship, our obedience, and our praise, Lord God. Lord, I just thank you for the liberty and the freedom that we have in Christ, and I humbly ask that you would bless this moment, that you would be glorified. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So, in, in February of 2015, there was this big debate um, that spread across the country like a wildfire. You had media outlets like the New York Times and CBS News covering this polarizing topic. You had celebrities like Taylor Swift and, and Justin Bieber uh, using their social media platforms to weigh in on this particular controversy. And, and no doubt there's some people under the sound of my voice who found themselves in perhaps a heated debate with friends and family members about this particular topic. Uh, if you could bring up the slide. How many of you guys remember this? <laughs> Like I said, it was about two and a half years ago, and this was known as uh, Dressgate. And so the whole debate started on Tumblr when a user asked for help in determining the color of the dress. Now, you had two sides. You were either team white and gold or you were team blue and black. And this debate went on for a couple of days. But the thing that fascinated me about this was just how adamant and how passionate each side was. You had people that saw the dress as white and gold, and they were just in total disbelief that others could see it as being black and blue. And then on the flip side, I saw, I remember one lady, I can't remember her name, she was on Good Morning America, and she saw the dresses being black and blue, and she says she gets angry every time she hears someone say that the dress is white and gold. And this debate raged for a couple of days, and while it may be fun to uh, engage in lighthearted discussions such as this, when we turn our attention to the text, we find that in the first century, the people are in the middle of a great controversy. And this is, it has nothing to do over an inanimate or a material object, but this particular debate was one that had eternal implications. You see, in the first century, uh, during Jesus's earthly ministry, uh, he preached before the multitudes, he performed many different miracles, and his fame spread throughout the region. And as he went about doing the will of the Father, many people began to question who this Jesus actually was. Some people saw him and they viewed him as simply a rabbi who was uh, very articulate, very eloquent. Um, some people, they looked at Jesus and they saw a healer. They saw a, a miracle worker. They saw someone who could do these amazing things that other people were not able to do. Some people looked at Jesus and they mistakenly confused him for one of the prophets. They thought, well, hey, maybe he's Elijah that's come back. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Some people even thought he was John the Baptist. And then you had a few people who correctly identified Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. But when we look at the text in verse 1, there is another group of people. And when they looked at Jesus, they didn't see any of those things. What they saw was a threat. They saw a lawbreaker. 
They saw a, a blasphemer of God. They saw someone who needed to be checked because if he would be left unchecked, he would just disrupt the whole order of things. So in verse one, we see this company. It says that they arose and they brought Jesus before Pilate. Now, this company is uh, would be better known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, they were the Jewish Supreme Court. It, was, it consisted of about 71 Jewish elders, uh, teachers, and chief priests, and they dealt with all the religious and legal issues that pertained uh, to Jerusalem. And even though they were under Roman oppression, they had a lot of freedom. They had a lot of authority that they could exercise. But one of the things that the Sanhedrin could not do was that they could not impose the death penalty. So although they hated Jesus, although they were fed up with him, they had to bring him to the Roman governor and have him execute the death penalty. So in verse two, uh, this crowd, they go before Pontius Pilate and they have a bunch of accusations. Now, Back in the Roman Empire, what Caesar would do is because his empire was so vast, he would appoint governors over different areas, especially the troublesome regions. And so Pontius Pilate, he was the governor of Judea and Samaria, and his main responsibility was to keep the peace and to collect the taxes. And so as the people go before Pontius Pilate, normally his headquarters would be in Caesarea, which was about 70 miles away from Jerusalem. But because this was the Passover, what you had happening was there was a large influx of Jewish people that would pour into Jerusalem during this time to observe the Passover. And because Pilate's job was to keep the peace, he made the 70 mile trip from Caesarea to Jerusalem because it was in his best interest to keep an eye on the crowd and make sure things went the way that they were supposed to go. And so now this crowd, they take Jesus and they bring him before Pontius Pilate. Now, something that I found very interesting, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me backtrack. One thing about Pilate, uh, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Pilate, but you get the sense that he was a very uh, cold individual. Uh, in Luke chapter 13, it makes mention of Pilate taking the blood of Galileans and mingling them with the sacrifices. And I, I looked into that a little bit. I didn't know what that was about. But apparently, Pilate killed people as they were sacrificing. So Pilate had no problem taking care of business. He had no problem killing people. So as they go before Pontius Pilate, one of the things that I found very interesting in John chapter 18, it also talks about this account. And you see that the Sanhedrin, when they go to Pontius Pilate, he was most likely staying in this place called the Praetorium. And the Praetorium was a beautiful palace that Herod the Great had built, and this is where he was hanging out. And so when the crowd goes to Pontius Pilate in John 18, it talks about Pilate had to go out to meet them. They didn't go inside to talk to Pilate. And I was like, what's up with that? Um, why didn't they step in his office and, and bring their accusations before Jesus? And the reason why is because if they would have entered a Gentile residence, it would have made them unclean and they would not have been able to eat the Passover. And when I read that, it blew my mind because here you have this group of people on one hand, they want to observe the Passover and pay reverence to God. But then on the other hand, they want to kill Jesus. That would be like you and I 
uh, preparing for a Good Friday service or preparing for Easter Sunday or Christmas. But then on the flip side, we're actively participating and advocating for the death of an innocent person. So Pilate goes outside. He asked them, hey, what's up? What's going on here? They say, listen, Pilate, we got a problem. And so they level three accusations against Jesus. The first is they accuse Jesus of perverting the nation, opposing God's will. We know that's a lie because uh, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill the law. We know that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. The second accusation that they brought uh, against Jesus was that he was telling the people not to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, this definitely would have caught the interest of Pilate because this was one of his responsibilities. But we know that that's a lie as well, because when the people tempted Jesus with a coin and say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What did he say? He said, give Caesar what's his and give God what's his. And finally, the third accusation that they brought before Jesus was that he is declaring himself to be the Christ. And that was the truth. That was the real issue that they had against Jesus. But I guess what they thought they had to do was to trump up a bunch of charges and bring them in, hoping that some of them would stick. They knew that Pilate wasn't really concerned with the last charge, so they added some charges that uh, might cause things to go in their favor. So Pilate does his job, and he begins to question Jesus. Now, while Luke's account doesn't give us um, all of the details, in John chapter 18, we can peer in on the conversation and see a little bit of, of what took place. And so in John 18, 36, um, Jesus answers Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And in verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. Now, let me pause for a second. Uh, I love this because if we backtrack for, for a few moments, Jesus had just been convicted in an illegal trial by the Sanhedrin. And now he's brought before Pilate on these trumped up charges and they want to kill him. Things are not looking good for Jesus at the moment. And now Pilate is questioning him. But when he's asking him all these questions, Jesus is letting Pilate know, hey, this is the whole reason why I'm here. He's letting Pilate know I was born to die, basically. And I love the fact that we serve a God who is sovereign. I love the fact that we serve a God that has never been surprised a moment in his existence. He doesn't know what it's like to be at a loss for words or try to scramble to put our lives together. He's never stumped as to what to do, but he's working all things together for our good. And even though Jesus was having a bad moment he realized that this was a part of God's plan. Uh, I remember a couple months ago, uh, Pastor Ben and I, we, we had planned a road trip. Uh, he was out on sabbatical, and we were planning to go to Philadelphia on, on a Sunday morning. And so this was a trip that we had planned earlier in the year, and uh, we were both looking forward to it. And so the night before the trip, Saturday night, I'm riding around in Harrisburg, everything's fine, and my check engine light comes on. And so I'm like, oh, OK, that's interesting. Uh, my mechanic is closed on the weekends. 
I'm like, there's nothing I can do. So I'll just, you know, make an appointment on Monday and have my mechanic fix whatever the problem is. So Sunday morning, uh, Pastor Ben and I meet. Uh, I offer to drive to Philly and I say, hey, Pastor Ben, just a quick heads up. You know, my check engine light came on, but it's all good. I was riding around and uh, we should be good to go. So we get in the car. <laughs> right. You know where this is going. <laughs> so we get in the car. Everything is fine. We're riding and, and just uh, just talking. And all of a sudden, about 20 miles outside of Philly, I start hearing this sound. And me, I'm a little bit in denial, so I just turn the radio up just a little bit louder. <laughs> and I keep talking to Pastor Ben, and, and we're cruising, but the sound won't go away. So now I pull over, and I am not mechanically inclined at all. I don't know much about cars, but it sounded like my valves were tapping, and perhaps it needed some oil. So I pulled over. I checked the oil. It was fine, a little low. So I, I bought a quart of oil put it in there. We get back in the car. We're headed. We're driving for about five minutes and the car just shuts off. One moment I'm doing 65. The next moment I have no power. I'm pressing on the accelerator. I'm just coasting. So we pull over on the shoulder. Now, for those of you that remember, this was a pretty interesting summer as far as weather. It was either raining or it was hot. This is one of them days it was hot. So I got on my church clothes. <laughs> We're 100 miles away from home. It's hot. I don't know who to contact, and I am stressing. And so um, all these thoughts start racing through my head. At first, I'm thinking, okay, I got to get it towed back home. I don't have AAA. I got to get it towed. How much is that going to cost? It doesn't sound good. It seems like it may be an ish, uh, engine issue. So now I've got to get that repaired. I have to get a rental in the meantime. So I'm thinking all these things. And then shortly after that, the questions start creeping in my mind. I'm like, God, why would you let this happen? I mean, we're going to church. We're on our way to church. Why wouldn't you allow us to make it there safely and back? And there was something real interesting throughout the whole experience that I'll never forget. Uh, Pastor Ben was always bringing up moments and reminding me of how good God was. He reminded me that, hey, brother, you know, we, we broke down here where there was a shoulder. There were certain parts of the highway where there wasn't a shoulder. You could have lost power there. He reminded me, hey, you know, it broke down, but at least it's not raining and we don't have to be walking around in the rain. And when we got to one of the attendants, he was extremely helpful, gave us some bottled water, gave us some advice. He said, hey, we ran into this guy who was a believer and he was real encouraging and helpful and all these things. And I didn't want to hear any of it at the time. I was getting mad because he wouldn't let me get mad. I wanted to stew. I wanted to stew in my self-pity. I wanted to have a pity party. But he was reminding me of the goodness of God. And while I was thinking the best thing that could have happened that day was, hey, I get an opportunity to hear one of my favorite pastors speak. Pastor Ben went to school with this guy, so there's a good chance I'll get to meet him and talk to him. I'm thinking that was what was best for me, but God knew better. God used that as an opportunity for me to learn how to have a proper perspective even when I'm having a bad day. How to give God glory even when things don't go the way I planned. And so as we go back to the text, we see that Jesus is having a bad day to say the least, but he still has everything in perspective. 
How do you see God when things don't go your way? Do you get offended? Do you get mad? Or do you realize that he's promised that all things are going to work together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose? So they continue to talk. And Jesus is saying in verse 37, he's saying, listen, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, you know that this is like a reoccurring theme. He's constantly uh, reinforcing in the ears of the listeners that what he's saying is truth. This is not one option amongst many. Uh, Christianity is not a, a buffet where you can pick the parts that you like and leave the other parts off. But he's saying everything I'm saying to you is the truth. Jesus would say things to, to his listeners like uh, God is a spirit. And we got to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He would say things like, you shall know the truth and the truth shall, shall set you free. He would say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But Pilate had a very interesting response to what Jesus was saying. In the next verse, Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, what is truth? What is truth? And so many of us, we say the same thing today. You know, we live in a society that just rejects absolute truth. We live in a society that believes like, hey, you know, well, well, that's your truth and I respect that. But, but my truth is this. And it's OK. You can believe what you want to believe and I can believe what I want to believe and we can all just get together. But that's not what Jesus says. You know, Jesus said in, in John chapter 17, when he was praying to the father, he said, sanctify them by your truth, your word. It's truth. But how do we see how do we see the word of God? Do we see it as something that's optional, something that we can use at our discretion when it fits our motives and our agendas? Or do we see this as the anchor for our lives? Do we see God and the Lord Jesus Christ as our foundation? How do you see God? You know, one of the interesting things about the whole uh, dress gate controversy is that there were several articles written afterwards that talked about the science of this phenomenon. I mean, how could you look at this and see different things? You know, I, I've got to be honest with you. When I first looked at it, I saw white and gold. And so the, the whole controversy was, how can you see different things? And so USA Today, they interviewed uh, Professor Arthur Shapiro, who's a professor at American University, and his expertise is in visual perception. And this is what he had to say. He said, individual wavelengths don't have color. It's how our brains interpret the wavelengths that create color. Uh, there were several factors that determine how we saw the dress. One of the factors was the quality of the camera that took the picture. And so basically this article concluded that people who saw a blue and black dress probably saw the photo as being overexposed. And people that looked at it and saw it as being white and gold they saw the photo as being underexposed. Now, in reality, the true color of the dress was black and blue. And I bring all that to say that you have some people that they hear the word of God, they hear the gospel, they read the Bible, but they don't believe that this is truth. But truth is truth. And if we're not careful, um, just like Pilate, we can begin to question 
uh, absolute truth. We can begin to allow our experiences. We can begin to allow culture. We can begin to allow information from people that we deem to be credible to skew our perception and we will no longer uh, accept and, and live by God's word. But after their conversation, Pilate goes back to the crowd and he says, listen, y'all, I've done my job. I've examined Jesus. And the verdict is he's not guilty of these charges. I find him innocent. And so after that, in verse five, uh, the crowd, they say, OK, Pilate, thanks for hearing us out. We're going to go and celebrate Passover. And that was the end of it. Right. No, that's not what happened at all. In verse five, it said that once Pilate said that Jesus was innocent, it said the people became more urgent. These people that looked at Jesus and viewed him as a threat, as an enemy, they were persistent in what they wanted. And brothers and sisters, we, we live in a time where there, there are enemies of the cross, there are enemies of the gospel, and they are not nonchalant, they're not neutral, they're not indifferent when it comes to the things of God, but they are actively trying to push out all things related to Jesus. You can walk out these doors and there, there are some magazines that you can just grab, a magazine called Persecution that constantly talks about how our brothers and sisters overseas are being persecuted in places like uh, Iran, Afghanistan, North Korea. You know, they don't have the liberties that we take for granted. They don't get to choose, okay, I, I prefer this translation over this translation. They don't necessarily get to pick what time of service they want to attend. But they're being imprisoned, beaten, and tortured for their faith in Jesus, what would allow someone to go through all of that and still have joy and still praise God? Because they're seeing him as he truly is. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to see Christ as he truly is, um, that, that's the only way that we can endure persecution without getting offended at God. That's the only way we can glorify him even in the midst of those trials and, and tribulations. So, I don't even want to focus so much overseas. We can look here and there are enemies of the gospel here. As I was preparing for this sermon, um, I decided to go on the American Atheist website, something I had never done before. You know, I know a little bit about atheism and what are some of their core beliefs, but I wanted to click on their vision statement and I wanted to find out, OK, what are some of their goals? What are some of the things that they're actively pushing towards? And this is one of the things that I found on their vision statement. They said they want to develop and propagate a social philosophy in which humankind is central and must itself be the source of strength, progress, and ideals for the well-being and happiness of humanity. That's one of the goals for the American Atheist Organization. And like I said, I had never been on this website before, but there was something eerily familiar. There was something in this that resonated within me because there are times in my sinful nature where I think the goal is my happiness. There are times within my heart where I feel like what I want, my needs, my wants, and my desires are central. There are times where my sin nature cries out, no, we will not have this man rule over us, but let my will be done. Brothers and sisters, that's another enemy of the gospel. And so we have to be careful. You, you've heard the saying, the real enemy is the inner me. 
So we have to be careful. We have to be rooted in and grounded in God's word. So these enemies of God, they, they say, listen, Pilate, you just don't understand. Like, this is a really serious situation. He's stirring up trouble everywhere. They're saying he's going from Judea all the way to Galilee, and he's creating these problems. And as soon as they said Galilee, I believe uh, Pilate's ears perked up. And he said, wait a minute, did you say Galilee? Um, is, is this man a Galilean? And once he found out that Jesus wasn't in his jurisdiction, he did what a lot of us do. You're at the office, you're busy, you have your work to do, and then somebody comes with something else that isn't your work, what do you do nine times out of ten? Well, what do I do? Listen, you want to go down that hall, you want to make a left, <laughs> ask for Jim, and he, that's your man, he can help you. And so when Pilate heard Galilee, he said, listen, listen, I would love to help you right now, but Herod, your man, what you want to do is you want to go down there... <laughs> Make this right, and Herod can help you out. And for him, it's a win-win because the crowd that hates Jesus, they can get the justice that they want. And Pilate, he doesn't have to deal with this whole Jesus dilemma. I mean, after all, who has time to deal with that? I mean, who has time to think about Jesus and who he really is and, and the implications of that? He's working. He's busy. He's got a heavy workload. He had to travel. He's on a road trip. He's got all these things compounded. He's got a family to feed. Who has time to deal with the whole Jesus thing? So he just gave it to Herod. Let him deal with it. So finally, Herod gets to meet Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, where Pilate may have seemed to be a little indifferent or a little nonchalant about the whole thing, uh, the Bible says the opposite about Herod. It says Herod was actually happy to see Jesus. You know, uh, like I said, the, the fame of Jesus had spread throughout the region and Herod had heard a lot of things about Jesus. And so upon hearing these things, he was actually one of the people who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. He heard about these miracles and he said, hey, you know, maybe John the Baptist came back from the dead and that's who this is. And so he was excited to finally meet Jesus. But something interesting happened. When the Sanhedrin and the crowd, they're, they're going before Herod and they're just ferociously accusing Jesus. And you have King Herod who's excited. And at the same time, he, he's doing his job. He's peppering Jesus with questions. Jesus remains silent. And I, I couldn't figure that out. I mean, if it were me, I would have handled the situation completely differently because one thing about Herod is we know he, he liked to turn up. Herod liked to party. He liked to have a really good time. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about uh, when John the Baptist rebuked Herod, he had John incarcerated. And then later on, Herod, he threw a party. And at this party, his stepdaughter starts dancing before Herod, and it's pleasing him. Now, I don't know what kind of dance moves this sister was doing. I don't know if she was uh, watching some old Janet Jackson videos, but she's killing it. She's dancing. And the Bible says that Herod was so pleased that he said, listen, anything you want, you can have it. Up to half my kingdom, I'm going to give it to you. And so when she asked her mom, Herodias, Herodias requested the head of John the Baptist. And that's how he died. And so knowing this about King Herod, knowing that he liked to party and have a good time, knowing that he was excited to be Jesus, to meet Jesus, for me, I would have been tempted. I would have said, hey, you know, uh, I may have been tempted to turn 
Herod's water into some Ciroc. I may have been tempted to levitate for a little bit just to put on a little show for Herod. But the Bible says that Jesus was completely silent. Why was that? Because Herod had no interest in the things of God. He could care less who Jesus was. He was looking for a good time. Herod wanted to be entertained. How do you see Jesus? Do you see him as this cosmic genie that's here to grant you your wishes? The Bible is, is the lamp, and if you rub it enough and if you believe just enough, God is going to spring out and give you anything that you want? How are we seeing Jesus? Because when Herod saw Jesus, he didn't see him as the Messiah. He didn't see him as the only hope this world has. He saw him as an entertainer. And I believe that's why Jesus remained quiet when Herod examined him. And so because Jesus refused to entertain Herod, Herod decides to have fun at Jesus's expense, and he begins to mock Jesus. He puts him in a beautiful robe, and they make fun of him. And brothers and sisters, we live in a time, especially here in, in Hollywood, where it's, it's like breathing for them to mock our Lord and Savior. I'm a big Marvel fan. I love Marvel movies. And I noticed more and more there's like this disturbing trend of like every movie, they're taking a shot at Jesus. I rented Ant-Man a couple days ago. That's like the silliest Marvel movie they have. It's all jokes. But even in that, they took a shot at Jesus. In many of the the and much of the music that we listen to, a lot of the TV shows, and if we're not careful, we'll become numb to that. They're taking shots at our Lord and Savior because they don't see him as he truly is. So Herod is done. He's done having fun. He takes Jesus, sends him back to Pilate. And it doesn't say this in the, in the scriptures, but I can only imagine that when Pilate saw that crowd coming back to him and Jesus returning, he was probably sick in his stomach. He was like, oh man, I can't believe this. And so when they come back in verses 13 through 16 of the text, Pilate for the second time declares the innocence of Jesus. He says, look, I examined him, not guilty. I brought him to Herod, Herod examined him, and he didn't find any charges against Jesus. That's why he brought him back to me. So this is what I'm going to, this is the plan that Pilate came up with. He said, because he's innocent, because he didn't do anything, I, I, got, a, I got an idea. Um, we're just going to take a crown of thorns, and we're going to press it upon his head. And uh, we'll take a cat of nine tails, and we'll just, we'll just beat him until he bleeds profusely. You know, after all, he is innocent. We don't want to kill him or anything like that. But we'll just uh, beat him over and over and over again, and then I'll let him go. You see, Pilate's issue was not, his dilemma was not, is Jesus guilty of the accusation or not? He knew that Jesus was innocent. He declared it twice up until this point that Jesus was innocent. His issue, as a matter of fact, if we go to the next slide, it says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So when Herod did his examination, he realized that, hey, not only is, is this Jesus innocent, but these guys are haters here. They're jealous. And that's why they're doing this. And I didn't, I didn't bring up the next slide, but in verse 19, if you go to this passage, you'll read that if there was any doubt, if there was any question as to whether or not Jesus was innocent or not, Pilate's wife 
comes up to Jesus and says, listen, I have nothing to do with the conviction of this innocent man. She said, I've suffered many things in a dream because of this. He's innocent, don't have anything to do with it. So Pilate knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was innocent. But his dilemma was, hey, how do I keep the people happy without killing an innocent man? And brothers and sisters, if we're going to see Jesus correctly, how many know sometimes it's going to cause, cause you to go against the grain? There are going to be times where you're not going to be popular because God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. And there are going to be some times where the crowd and the general consensus is compelling you to do something, but God's word says the opposite. What are we going to do? So Pilate goes ahead and has Jesus beaten. And after Jesus is beaten with the robe on and with the crown of thorns on his head, he brings Jesus before the crowd and he says, listen, uh, I know this is a Passover celebration. I know you guys have a tradition. Normally, you like to let somebody go. So this is what I'm going to do. We're going to let this Jesus go. And he thought that that would appease the crowd. But the crowd refuses to be satisfied with anything less than the death of Jesus. And they begin to cry out. They say, no, crucify him and give us Barabbas. Now, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about Barabbas, but it uses a few interesting uh, words or adjectives to describe him. One of the things that it says about Barabbas was that he was a robber. Another thing it says about Barabbas was that he was notorious and that he, he took part in a rebellion that ended up killing someone. So I don't know if Barabbas was fighting against the Roman government. He may have been looked as, as a folk hero amongst the Jewish people. I don't know this, but what I do know was that Barabbas was the last person that Pilate would have wanted to release. He was the type of person that Pilate should have buried underneath the jail because he was a revolutionary. He didn't have any problem uh, rebelling and killing people. But that's who they wanted. And so now, you know, at this point, Pilate is just stumped. He's like, hey, we've we beaten this guy. He's innocent. Why do you want to kill him so bad? And the Sanhedrin answer Pilate. In the next slide, it, it says that the Jews answered him and said, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, can you imagine for a second uh, just how Jesus was feeling? I mean, just try to put yourself, it's impossible, but try to put yourself in his shoes for one moment. I mean, somebody in his camp betrayed him. Everybody else in his crew leaves at the first sight of trouble. One of his dearest friends denies that he even knows him. And now this pilot, one of the last people that he's having a meaningful conversation with before he's going to die on the cross, he's starting to buckle under the weight and the pressure of being associated and knowing Jesus. Just rejection after rejection after rejection. Pilate hears this and he's afraid. Now he knows that he's not dealing with just a regular person. And so he brings Jesus back and he starts to talk to him and he says, hey, hey, wh wh where did you say you're from again? And this time, instead of engaging Pilate, Jesus is silent. 
Why? He's already told him everything. He's already declared to him that he's not of this world and that what he was saying is truth. And now Pilate is operating in fear. Pilate proves to be a poor leader. Instead of making the difficult decision and standing with Christ, he buckled under the weight of what the crowd wanted. What, what do you and I do, brothers and sisters, when we're facing those situations? How many know sometimes serving Jesus is going to cause you to be uncomfortable? So Pilate ultimately caves in and he gives in to the mob's desires and he releases Barabbas, who interestingly enough, his name means son of Abba or son of the father. And he orders Jesus to be crucified. So think about that. While the religious leaders are preparing the the physical lamb to celebrate the Passover, the lamb of God is being crucified. You know, brothers and sisters, I'm almost done, but uh, I just want to encourage you because sometimes it's easy to detach ourselves from these accounts in the Bible. You know, sometimes we hear a story like this or we'll read a chapter and we'll say, well, shame on Pilate. He's whack. Or, man, shame on Herod. I would have never done that. I can't believe they couldn't see who Jesus was. I can't believe they responded in this particular situation. But my question for you, brothers and sisters, is how do you see Jesus? You know, some see him as a fictional character that's deserving of our insults and needs to be mocked. Some see him as a God who is all love and would never condemn anyone to hell because how could a God of love send someone to hell? But how do you see Jesus? Some see him as this narrow-minded fanatic who's intolerant of others when he says things like, no man can come to the Father but through me. But how do you see Jesus? Some see him as, uh, like I said, our, our genie that's here to just grant our wishes and to give us everything we want. He's here for our pleasure, our happiness, and our enjoyment. But brothers and sisters, how do you see him? Do you see him as the son of God? Do you see him as one third of of the Godhead who created all things visible and invisible? Do you see him as the word of flesh who came and dwelt among us? Do you see him as, as, as the son of Mary, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect and sinless life, who grew up in Nazareth, Nazareth on, on the rough side of the tracks? How, how do you see him? Do you see him as the one who rebuked the storms and the waves and, and who walked on water? Do you see him as the one who cast out demons and they trembled before him? Do you see him as the one who opened the eyes of the blind and caused the deaf to hear? Do you see him as the one who went before the woman and said, woman, where are your accusers? If they don't condemn you, I don't condemn you either. How do you see him? Do you see him as the one who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities? Do you see him as the one who died on the cross? to atone for your sins and to atone for my sins? Do you see him as the one who victoriously rose from the grave with all power and authority in his hands? Do you see him as our great high priest who's constantly interceding on our behalf? How do you see him? Do you see him as the one who said he's coming back for a glorious bride? Because brothers and sisters, how you see him makes all the difference in how you live your life. 
And my prayer is that we see him as a holy, loving God that's worthy of our obedience, our adoration, and our praise. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk with my brothers and sisters, Lord God. You are so amazing, Lord God. I thank you for your word, Lord God. I thank you that you are sovereign, Lord God. That even in the midst of a bad day, even in the midst of uh, living in this, this world broken by sin, you love us intimately, Lord God. You're concerned for us. And Father God, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we don't see you the way that we should, Lord God. Help us to see you properly, Lord God. I pray that you would allow us to see those things that are competing for our affection, our attention, and that we would fix our gaze upon you, Lord God. I ask that you would renew our minds and touch our hearts, Lord God. Strengthen us in the areas that we are weak, Lord God. I pray that you would strengthen us in the areas where we are tempted to, to compromise and to just go with the status quo, Lord God. But help us to, in light of all you've done, Lord God, help us to be unashamed of the gospel, not just to proclaim it, but to live it, Lord God, because you are worthy of that. I pray that you would give everyone traveling mercies, and I, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Where's that on your feet?